0: Another reason that we are here in the States is uh, Friday this coming Friday, I will have the opportunity to uh, walk the stage at Southern Baptist Seminary and receive a diploma the fruition of uh, several years of study and a thesis that I have had the opportunity to write and have prepared and and again, I do apologize to those who came to the seminar in in um, August, but uh, as I have gone around and been able to share the fruit of my research, the results of my studies at different churches, and also to do another seminar in California, I've been so encouraged by the response that people have shared with me uh, that they have learned something that maybe they have neglected themselves. And so, especially with Christmas coming up, I couldn't not speak upon the humanity of Christ this morning. And this is a a journey that began for me uh, around 2012 when we had the opportunity to have a speaker uh, come to Croatia. His name is Doug Bookman. And his life, his academic life, has been devoted to two subjects. One is the life of Christ, and the other is the land of Israel. And of course, those two things come in uh, close together and, and, and feed one another. And so just as he would share with us about the life of Christ, the life of our Savior, and looking at all the details of his life, Uh, It was just a really powerful time, both for me, for, for Nina, and for our ministry in Croatia. And near the end of those lectures, we were having lunch with Dr. Bookman, and Nina asked this question to Dr. Bookman. She said, of all your study of the life of Christ, what one truth stands out above all? And without hesitation, Dr. Bookman said, we as believers... We tend to focus on the deity of Christ to the neglect of His humanity. We tend to think more about His deity. We tend to think clearer about His deity than we do His humanity. And to one, for one reason, this is, is very understandable. We need to defend the deity of Christ. We need to defend the deity of Christ and, and understand it Clearly. So that when someone comes knocking on our door on a Saturday morning, that we can explain to them that Jesus Christ is almighty God and they must repent and believe in him or they will perish in their sins. We need to defend the deity of Christ against liberal believers who would say that Christ is an extraordinary man, but nothing more than a man and wouldn't even attack the doctrine of the virgin birth. So it's understandable that we focus on the deity of Christ, but my question to you this morning is, do you understand, do you possibly neglect the doctrine of the humanity of Christ? Other authors have affirmed what Dr. Bookman said. Brian Borgman says in his his book, Feelings and Faith, sometimes in our zeal, to emphasize one point of theology, we neglect another which is why in our efforts to defend Christ's deity, we have often overlooked the vital doctrine of His humanity. Bruce Ware in his book, The Man, Jesus Christ, calls this almost like an evangelical intuition, almost a default mode in our thinking, to think, again, more of His deity than of His humanity. Commentator George Guthrie suggests that this is an un I'm sorry that the unconscious tendency to discount the humanity of Christ is a new form of an old heresy. He writes, "If we are careless in our thinking about Jesus, then we can slip into a form of neo-apollinarianism, embracing his divinity but holding his humanity at arm's length." And we all acknowledge the obvious things. Jesus was thirsty on the cross. Jesus was tired in the boat. Jesus was born. He grew as a child. He learned things. And he died a physical death. But we rarely consider things like the emotions of Christ the daily obedience of Christ, the faith of the man, Jesus Christ. We may find it hard to explain the disappointments or the struggles of Christ, and we certainly find it hard to explain the temptations of Christ. We underestimate that He experienced the common to man problems That we ourselves face. We tend to read the Gospels, as Dr. Bookman described, as if Jesus Christ were like Clark Kent walking around on earth, and at any moment, if he needed to, he could change into Superman. I remember when I was in high school, my youth pastor, Rick Holland, was talking about Jesus and how authentic. Jesus would be that he would never look at someone and say, Oh, I love that dress. And then turn around and say, Ooh, where did she get that dress from? And one of my friends raised their hands and said, But Rick, wouldn't Jesus know where she got the dress from? (laughs) And that's our tendency to think that. Jesus knew all things, and he did know all things with respect to his deity. But with respect to his humanity, he learned things. He acquired information, just like we acquire information by asking questions. And those two things existed side by side in a way we can't completely explain. But we need to understand that his deity did not violate the limitations of his humanity. We read the Gospels as if Jesus could shift from, from two wheel drive into four wheel drive anytime he got stuck or needed help. As if he was unaffected or without being affected by his circumstances, as if he was stayed. Why is this important? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks, tells us why this is important in verse 18. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul defends his ministry. It's a new covenant ministry. And he um, explains one of the reasons that his ministry is superior is because it is based on the new covenant. The old covenant was law. It was fading. It was uh, a, a covenant that condemned. It killed But the new covenant was lasting. It provides righteousness. It is of the Spirit. It gives life. But one of the reasons that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant is because of the full revelation of Jesus Christ. And he ends his argument in verse 18, and he says that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So by seeing the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into His image. One of the means that God gives us to grow, to become like Christ, is the glory of Jesus Christ as we see it revealed in the Scriptures. But what if our view of the glory of the Lord is imbalanced? What if we see the glory of the Lord clearly in His deity, but we don't see it so clearly in His humanity? That has the potential to then undermine our spiritual growth. This is vitally important for our growth. God's purpose for us The good that He has in store for those who love Him is that we are conformed to His image, the image of Jesus Christ, so that Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. We know this from Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The Father loves the Son so much that He wants to create millions of copies of the Son in the believer's those who follow His disciples. But if we do not see the glory of Christ, if we don't understand the fullness of that glory, both in His deity and His humanity, then we will not be conformed to His image as effectively as we might otherwise. So the process of growth, involves gazing at the glory of Christ. We need to understand it. We need to see all of it. So if gazing at the glory of Christ is what transforms us, if if it's what changes us, it's not the only way that God changes us, but it is a way that God changes us, then what is the most effective way to gaze upon and meditate upon the glory of Christ? Where is this glory revealed? It's revealed in the Scriptures, of course. But specifically, we see it in the Gospels. John tells us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld its glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. We see the glory of Christ in the Gospels. It is glory most certainly in His deity, but it is also glory in His humanity. But my question to you is this. Do you read the Gospels carefully? Do you read the Gospels so as to see the glory of Christ in His humanity? Do you read the Gospels in light of what the epistles say about Christ? The humanity of christ we 're going to look briefly at Hebrews chapter two verses fourteen through eighteen and we 're going to just briefly trace a couple of themes through these four verses and then we 're going to apply them as an example to one area one aspect of jesus 's life So open with me to Hebrews chapter two verses fourteen through eighteen there 's really key, three key passages that we need to focus on and understand to understand the humanity of Christ. That is Hebrews chapter 2, then Hebrews chapters 4 and 5, and then also Philippians chapter 2. We don't have time to look at all those passages, but I would just encourage you to go to those passages and meditate upon it and think about it and observe the text and see what it says about the incarnation. We're just going to look at Hebrews chapter 2, and then we're going to move to some application. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. The writer of the epistle of Hebrews says To us. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted, and that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So we're going to trace two threads quickly through this passage. We're going to look first at the descriptions of the Incarnation. There's four descriptions of the Incarnation here. First, Jesus took on the same physical nature of all mankind. We see this in verse 14. The writer says, "...since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things." Now, he's just explained a few verses earlier that Jesus surpasses all supernatural beings even though he was made for a little while lower than the angels. And then the author affirms that Jesus partook of the same flesh and blood. All of our versions, all of our translations say flesh and blood because that's what we say in English. It's a a very natural English idiom. But the original says the same blood and flesh, because the blood is essential to life. That is an understanding we get from the Scripture. That's why we talk about shedding blood, or blood was spilt as a metaphor for death. But Jesus partook of the same nature. So the author explicitly expresses the distinction between Jesus and other human beings while emphasizing the great similarity in two specific ways. First, he says, children, mankind, share in the same nature. Jesus partook of the same nature. He added it to himself, to his divine nature. But the writer here also combines an emphatic conjunction with an emphatic pronoun and an adverb in order to stress the degree of solidarity. Literally, he says, he himself also, in the same manner, partook of the same nature. But notice how precise He is. He says, all mankind share, we have in common the same nature. But Jesus partook of that nature. He added it to Himself. He is affirming what Paul affirms in Philippians chapter 2, that the pre-existing divine Son of God added a Human nature to himself without becoming anything less in his deity. It's very precise here, but very emphatic the degree of solidarity. Jesus came and took on the exact same physical nature as all of mankind. Secondly, in verse 16, if you look down there, we see that Jesus identifies with mankind, not other creatures. In verse 16, he says, Assuredly, he did not give help to angels. He didn't come for the angels' sake. He came for mankind's sake. Again, showing a description of the deity that he is emphatically uh, repeating what he said in verse 14. He took on the same nature of mankind in order to help mankind, not any other creature that God has made. Next, he came in verse 17 in complete solidarity with mankind. See, look, notice what it says in verse 17. He had, he was required, it was necessary, absolutely necessary for him to become like his brothers in all things. Again, he's using emphatic language in all things. He uses. The word brothers to emphasize this familial affiliation. And he underscores the absolute necessity. The word he uses here speaks of a moral obligation. It was absolutely essential that he become like his brothers. And then finally, in verse 18, the author again states the fact of the incarnation with the words, He is able to... To help those who are being tempted by virtue of the fact that he himself suffered the same temptations. What we experience, what we go through, the writer of Hebrews uses the same verb to describe Jesus' experience. We experience temptations. He also experienced temptations. By using the same verb to describe this experience of the Son of God, the ones that he came to identify with, the writer draws a close parallel between his situation and our condition. The Savior himself suffered just like we suffer, he understands what we go through, he knows our frame. He knows our lot. He entered into our world and became holy like us. He knows your challenges. Not simply because he's omniscient and knows everything. He knows what you are going through because he went through the same things. So we see four descriptions of the incarnation in this passage. But we also see five reasons given for the incarnation it's a second thread that kind of goes through this passage and we're going to quickly go through these five reasons given for the incarnation first go back to verse 14 and the writer here says that jesus came to set mankind free from the tyranny of satan satan through his temptation his successful temptation of adam and eve brought death into the world Jesus came so that he could die and set us free from that curse that God promised would come in the day that we sin and we will surely die. So Jesus came to set us free from the tyranny of Satan who brought death into the world. And by bringing death into the world, we see a second thing that Satan was able to do. He's able to manipulate us through the fear of death. So Jesus came to set mankind free from the fear of death. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, And he might free those who, through the fear of death, were subject to slavery all of their lives. That reality of death, the curse that is before us all, the decay that we experience, Satan uses that to manipulate us, to control us. He uses fear of death. But Christ came to destroy the work of Satan and to free us from the results of his work, which is death and the fear of death. The writer goes on in verse 17, and he explains another important reason why Jesus had to come. And he introduces a theme that is unique to this epistle, the theme of Jesus as our great high priest. In verse 17, he says, He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus was obliged to become like his brothers in everything for the purpose of becoming our representative, our high priest. And in his role as the high priest of his people, Jesus then accomplishes these other goals. Freeing us from the tyranny of Satan, freeing us from the fear of death. He is the high priest, annuls the power of Satan. He delivers his people from fear. He is that perfect mediator between God and man, as Paul says in First Timothy chapter two, verse five. He shares our nature and is therefore able to represent us to God. Being faithful in all things with a perfect record of obedience, he is our representative. But he is also able to represent God to us the mercies of God that come to believing, repentant sinners. He is the way, the means, the doorway to that mercy. Again, as the mediator, the perfect high priest that stands between his people and God. The author so tightly binds Jesus' priesthood with his humanity that if we undermine his humanity in any way, then we undermine his role as our high priest. But he also fulfills another role as our high priest. He is our sacrifice. Look at verse 17 with me. The end of the verse. He became our merciful and high priest so that in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What is propitiation? It is the substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus laid down his life to absorb the wrath of God that was intended for us, justly intended for us. The writer later points out and explains further in Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10 the details of how Christ did that, averting God's wrath, absorbing it to Himself. But he makes propitiation for the sins of the people through his own death, through his sacrifice. Had he not become man, he could not be, be our sacrifice. And then finally, a fifth reason. Jesus came to help sinners who are beset with sin. Sinners who are plagued. Sinners who are tormented. Sinners who are overwhelmed. Verse 18 says, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Because He identifies with us, because of His solidarity with us, He is able to help us in our temptations. He came to go through the same common to man temptations, challenges, and problems that we go through so that He could be our representative, our counselor, our friend, our Savior, our Lord, And our King. So Jesus' act of becoming man brought him into complete solidarity and profound identity with the human condition, with all of us. And this is true humanity. There is no subtraction to his deity, but there's also no violation of his humanity. What does that mean? First of all, he gave up a position. He didn't give up power. I wouldn't say he gave up prerogatives because he was still divine God. But he gave up his position and took on the form, Paul says, of a slave. Without violating his deity, but taking on true humanity. So with respect to his humanity, this means that Jesus Christ lived with the same resources that we live with as believers. We trust in the Word of God. We trust in the promises of God. And we depend upon the Spirit of God. We depend upon the Father. And that is how Jesus Christ lived His life as a man. Trusting in the promises of God and depending upon the Spirit of God. So, what does this mean? Let's talk about some applications. I want to give you just kind of three applications that I made in my studies and my research. We're going to focus on one particularly at the end. Jesus knows what it's like to bear a burden, Some of you are bearing a burden this morning. There's something on your mind that you can't escape from. When you wake up in the morning, it's there. When you go to sleep at night, it's there. It could be anything. It could be something that, a problem that you are facing. It could be a problem that someone you love is facing. But Jesus knows what this is like. At some point, early in his life, maybe in his early teens, Jesus realized something, studying the Word of God as he did every day. Every day. He understood what his role was, why he came to earth. He understood as a man why he was different than all other men. He realized, reading Isaiah 53, reading Psalm 22, he realized, he came to the understanding that he is the man of sorrows. He is the one who is acquainted with, with grief his whole life. He is the one who would be rejected. He is the one who would be despised. That those verses spoke of his life. Reading further, he realized that he would be the one who would be crushed. The Spirit of God revealed to him that he would be punished in the place of rebels and transgressors. That he would be disciplined in place of of sinners. And he probably grew in his understanding of this role throughout his whole teenage years and his whole adult life till he realized that this day was coming closer and closer and closer. And as you read the Gospels, you see both the distress that that caused Christ, but also the resultant determination to fulfill that role that the prophets spoke of that he had come to understand. So he carried a burden his whole life, just like we often face and carry burdens. We all bear burdens. We all face challenges. We are all at times paralyzed by dread and fear and daunting circumstances, But Jesus came to this earth and went through the same experience that we did. Common to man, problems. Jesus knows what it's like to bear a burden. Jesus also knows what it's like to be disappointed in people. Jesus was rejected by his hometown. He was rejected by his nation. He was rejected by... Fickle followers who threw their hands up and said, these are tough things. Who's going to follow this guy if he's talking this way? So that nearly all abandoned him. Don't think that that didn't affect Jesus as a man, to watch all who followed him fall away. He was taunted by his own brothers his mother sought to take advantage of his unique power and role. Everywhere he turned, there were enemies trying to trip him up or set him up. The disciples were dense. They provided very little relief to him. They created many problems. They were slow to learn. Even John the Baptist, facing death, sends a delegation to Jesus and says, Are you really the Messiah? Or do I look for someone else? Have you ever thought about how Jesus received those questions? As a man, no doubt it wounded him. Only once do all the biblical writers record that someone, someone came to Jesus one time and thanked him for what he did. Do you feel underappreciated? Jesus knows what that's like. We don't have to mention Judas or Peter. Jesus knows disappointment in people. All that He did for individuals and for mankind with so little regard for Him. But it was not easier for Him because He was fully God. We need to get rid of that thought. He was fully man. With the emotions, the expectations, the reactions, and the temptations of an ordinary yet sinless man. So please remember, Jesus knows what it's like to bear a burden. Jesus also knows what it's like to be disappointed in people. And Jesus knows what it's like to be disappointed in your circumstances. To be disappointed in your circumstances. He experienced this. He tasted this. How many of us are here this morning and the path before us is neither desirable nor attractive nor easy nor comfortable? We're facing something that we just don't have the appetite to face. There are unpleasant circumstances, situations that we must deal with. The Savior knows what that is like. Jesus' life was a tough human life, and we tend to read the Gospels, maybe a little sentimental, maybe a little romantic, and we forget that, or we don't recognize that. He faced financial instability. He faced difficult situations at work. Uh, when we think of Jesus as a carpenter, we tend to think of uh, of him uh, in his workshop, building things. Maybe as a young man, his father Joseph doted on him. Ay, vey, another perfect chair, my son. <laughs> Jesus was probably on a team of day laborers working for profane, demanding. Bosses. So if you have problems with your boss, be confident that Jesus understands what that is like. To have demanding customers. Jesus knows what that's like. We need to kind of put aside these romantic views of Jesus' life. He had virtually no privacy, crowds of demanding people following him, no control over his own time, people constantly taking advantage of him. He got almost no cooperation. His rights were ignored all the way up to the trial that he faced for his life that was either convenient or expedient or a total travesty of justice, however we might interpret that. His rights were trampled. And he lived with shame. Shame. I'm trying to provoke you to read the Gospels a little more carefully. Maybe uh, today's December 2nd, right? Maybe until Christmas, you take a Gospel and you read a chapter a day, thinking carefully how did Jesus go through these experiences that are described here as a man? You're reading about an extraordinary man, the God man, fully God, but also fully man. And so, as we begin to think about Christmas, we know that the circumstances of the birth of Jesus Christ were unique. They were extraordinary, and they had to be so that he could be our perfect, sinless sacrifice. He was born without a sin nature, and he never caved into t- temptation. The virgin birth is true. And it is absolutely necessary. But it was personally costly for Jesus and his family. Think about this. Turn quickly with me to John chapter 8, verse 31. We're not going to look in detail at this passage, but maybe point out something maybe you've thought about, maybe you haven't thought about deeply enough. But in John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus is dialoguing, he's teaching. And of course, the Pharisees are there trying to trip him up. And Jesus explains, starting in verse 31, what a true disciple is, and he contrasts this with the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews who oppose him. And so he says, a, a true disciple abides in the word of Christ. He knows the truth and therefore is set, a, set free, set free from sin. And of course, The Pharisees misrepresent Jesus' words. Their irrational, willful sin and rebellion has this effect. And so in verse 34, or I'm sorry, in verse uh, 33, the Pharisees respond to Jesus and say, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? This is a total lie, total misrepresentation. The Jews were often slaves of others, and they were slaves for all practical purposes of the Romans at this moment when they say this. But Jesus appeals to their statement that we are Abraham's descendants, and down in verse 39, He says, if you are of Abraham, then do as Abraham, believe, In the process of this discussion, Jesus makes a distinction between his father and their father. And this provokes the Jewish leaders, and they throw down their trump card. Look at verse 41. Jesus says to them, you are doing the deeds of your father. And they say to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. What are they saying here? We are not born of sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia. An older translation would say, We are not born of whoredom. We have one father, God. We know who our father is. The NIV says, Maybe this is more helpful. We are not illegitimate children. People talk. The Jews had done their research. They knew that there were questionable circumstances concerning Jesus' birth. In order to accomplish what Jesus had to accomplish, the circumstances of His birth had to be unique. Those unique circumstances produced a difficult, if not scandalous, situation. It was not fair but it had to be. And this produced a burden borne by Jesus and his family. A scandalous rumor that always shadowed his family. They say in Croatia, people talk, especially in villages, especially in towns, Nazareth, Bethlehem. How extensive is this? Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. We come to the Christmas story. You all know this verse. It says, And she gave birth to their firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them. In the end, because Expedia had messed up their reservations. Because of the journey and because Mary was pregnant, they came in after six o'clock. The reservations went to someone else. Because all the officials had come to town to do the census, and there just wasn't enough room for them in the end. Multiple explanations. That poor, poor innkeeper. Had he known that when he turned away the holy family, that he would become the bad guy in all those Christmas plays. (laughs) But the word here for inn is the Greek word kataluma. You understand now? What is a kataluma? Well, well, It's not the word for in. There is a standard word for in that that Luke uses in chapter 10, verse 34, when he's describing uh, the Good Samaritan, the man who was attacked on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and the Good Samaritan took care of him and then placed him in an inn and covered all of his expenses. There is a word for in, and that is not the word that Luke uses here in chapter 2. Luke uses this word that he uses in chapter 2, but he uses it in Luke chapter 22, verses 10 and 11. I'll just read those to you. You're familiar with this story. Jesus said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters, and you shall see. say to the owner of the house that this teacher says to you, where is the guest room, the Cataluma, in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. The word here for inn is actually guest room, inns, motels. They were rare in first century Israel, and they were pretty dicey establishments when they existed. But they were not found in small places that were not on major roads like Bethlehem, a small, obscure place out of the way. Many commentators agree that this probably was not an inn in Bethlehem. So what are we talking about? Well, the typical Jewish home would be a very simple rectangular building with a larger room in the center and a small rectangular room to the one side, the Cataluma, the guest room, and then an open room to the other side, which was for the animals. Probably a donkey. The sheep were kept outside in the open pastures. Cows were probably rare for the typical Jewish family, and of course, there were no pigs. So, probably just a small room with a donkey on the other side of the house. Some houses that were nicer might have a guest room upstairs. And that's what Jesus is referring to in Luke chapter 22. The upper room is another word that Jesus uses after he says, "Asked for, or requests the guest room. There was no place for them in the guest room. Now, quickly, think with me. We've all read stories in the Bible that relate to hospitality, taking someone into your home. The expectations, the cultural norms for hospitality were very strict. They were very demanding. In fact, when we read the extent that some of the Old Testament people went to to protect their guests, for us it's absolutely unthinkable. It's, there's no explanation for it. It's crazy what they did for their guests to protect them. guests were honored. They were treated with respect. They were protected in ancient Jewish culture. We also know that births were a big deal, especially the birth of a firstborn child. It was a joyous event. And of course, like today, weddings were a big deal, sometimes lasting even for several days. Now think with me. Joseph from Bethlehem proposes proposes marriage to young Mary from Nazareth. This is a big deal. Engagement, as you probably know, was binding as marriage, but there was no living together. Joseph's got a, a period of time, maybe a year, to prepare a home, a house before his wedding. It's is small towns in Israel. Everyone knows, and the word goes out to the family, far and wide, there's going to be a wedding. But sometime... During that engagement period, an angel appears to Mary in Nazareth, in the north, in Galilee. And it says after the Mary, after this angel appears to Mary, that she went quickly to visit her cousin Elizabeth in the south, in Judah, and she stayed there three months. Now, Mary returns after three months to. Nazareth. And what happens pretty soon after Mary returns to the little town of Nazareth? Right? Mary's pregnant. This is a problem. This is a dilemma. We read through this, we don't even think about it anymore. And we know that this is a problem for Joseph because Matthew explains to us in chapter 1 that he was a righteous man and he thought about just sending sending her away secretly, but he did not want to disgrace her. And the angel appears to Joseph and says, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." So Joseph decides not to expose, to shame, to embarrass, to uh, leave completely vulnerable this young lady who's pregnant out of wedlock. But we know, we know that this shame and embarrassment didn't simply disappear because Joseph was a righteous man and made a righteous decision. He saved her from a hopeless, desperate, impossible situation. Sure, poverty. But we can be sure as well that word went out again. It's not going to be a wedding. It's not going to be a wedding. Did you hear? Mary came back from Galilee pregnant. The Holy Spirit you think they could come up with a better story than that. People talk. People are cruel. So Joseph from Bethlehem comes into town with Mary, his new pregnant wife. And I don't have time to get into uh, what the Bible says about illegitimate children and the number of illegitimate children in the Bible. It's not a stellar group of people. I will say that illegitimate children were not allowed to enter into the temple. That's the law. So, here's the picture. Mary and Joseph come dragging into town, Joseph's hometown, where he has plenty of relatives. Family and hospitality are big responsibilities, duties. In those days, you don't know who the gender of your child is ahead of time, but Mary and Joseph did have that going for them. They knew they were going to have a son, the firstborn son in the family, but there would not be a big celebration over the birth of the firstborn son for Mary and Joseph. There was no place in the guest room for them. In fact, you could Translate this sentence. In the guest room, there was no place for them. Joseph, I understand your your problem. But the best I can do for you is a room on the other side of the house with the animals. Now, There is an early tradition, very early tradition, that it was a cave with the animals. But it was not an inn, I don't think, and it certainly was not the guest room. It wasn't the night clerk of the Holiday Inn that's the bad guy in the story. It was Cousin Mortimer or Uncle Moses or Aunt Ruth. Who's at the door? You've got to be kidding me. Let them stay with the animals. It had to be this way. It had to be this way so that Jesus would have the same physical nature that we have, but not the same sin nature as the ones he came to save. The shame, the disgrace, the embarrassment were unavoidable. These are common to men problems. They were situations or circumstances beyond Jesus' human control. The shame, the disgrace, the embarrassment, the sorrow, the disappointment, the grief that Jesus experienced as a man were genuine. Genuine. But when we experience shame and embarrassment, why is that? Because of our own pride, because of our own sin. Jesus experienced those things also because of our sin and our pride, not His own. This was all due to to our sin. It was for us. It was to identify with us. It was to show solidarity with us, to help us in our temptations, to pay our debt, to suffer in our place. We are the bad guys in this story, the wicked rebels, the transgressors, the self-satisfied, self-righteous, selfish, prideful, ungrateful sinners, trying to get what we can out of Jesus without walking with Him or conforming to Him. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. To do so, He had to become like us in all things. We are saved when we look to Him. We are transformed. We are changed. We grow when we look to him and we will be glorified. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says when we see him as he really is, we must look to Christ. But when we look to Christ, we need to make sure that we see his full glory. The center of our faith. It's not a religion. It's not a system, it's not a ministry style. It's not a tradition. It's not even a body of doctrine, although those things can be very important. We need to be cross-centered, but we need to remember that the cross is just a piece of wood where the God-man hung, and it's important because He hung there in our place. We must be gospel-centered, but we dare not forget that the gospel is a word about christ about jesus the center of our faith is a man a god man who calls us to come to him all who are weary and heavy laden who invites us into his throne room the scepter is extended we dare not fear We can come freely before a throne of grace and mercy and the one who sits on that throne understands everything you've ever faced and gone through. He knows you. He knows your frame. Charles Spurgeon, speaking to this topic, says this. Our temptation is to regard the Lord's humanity as something quite different from our own. We are apt to spiritualize it away and not to think of Him as really bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. All this is akin to grievous error. Many fancy that we are honoring Christ by such conceptions, focusing on His deity, But Christ is never honored by that which is not true, diminishing His humanity. He was a man, a real man, a man of our race, the Son of Man. He came to this earth, took on flesh, became like us in all things so that He could save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You, we thank You, we worship You, and we worship the Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who left the glory of heaven and the perfect fellowship that He had with you to live on this rotten, sinful world full of depraved sinners. He experienced what we experience. And He laid down His life so that we could be freed from those things. We praise You. We thank You. Help us to see His glory in all respects. To know Him. To follow Him. To love Him. And to be more like Him. And Lord, I pray that if There are those here this morning that do not know Christ, that do not walk with Him, that you would tear away that veil that blinds their eyes, that they may see the glory of Christ and begin to be transformed into His same image. Give them the grace to come to Christ. We thank you that you have opened our eyes, that you have given us the gift of faith, We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.